Hello there and welcome to the Bold Love Podcast with Pastor Bob Roberts Jr., where we highlight the uncommon journeys of bridge builders and peacemakers that are living out their faith in the public square by boldly loving their neighbor and working together to build resilient communities. Uh, my name is Josh Tate. Hello. Thank you for joining us and taking time to listen to the podcast today. I'm your co-host here on the Bold Love Podcast. Uh, our goal is really to facilitate conversations with people of other faiths and different faiths and just tell stories of bridge building that will encourage you, the listener, to do three things, uh, to live out your faith boldly, how to better love your neighbor and really defining what loving your neighbor looks like and learning how to relate to others despite your differences without compromising your faith. So if this is your first time listening to our podcast, man, we can't suggest highly enough to go back and listen to some of the other ones that include Imam Muhammad Majid, Dr. Russell Moore, Hamza Youssef, Craig Considine, just a lot of good conversations with people of various faiths uh, that really talk about bridge building. You know, we get a chance to hold these discussions with people from different beliefs, you know, with the sole purpose of learning how to engage with one another uh, in the public square and how to work together in communities and how to truly uh, love your neighbor. Now, let me take a few minutes to introduce you to a friend of ours and who is a guest on the Bold Love podcast on this episode. That's Najiba Saeed, and she is the Associate Professor of Muslim and Interreligious Studies at Chicago Theological Seminary, where she is also the director of the Center of Global Peacemaking. So she's perfect for this podcast. Uh, she's a recognized leader in peace building and social justice-based research. And she twice received the John Anson Ford Award for reducing violence in schools in the area of interracial gang conflicts. And she was even noted as Peacemaker of the Year in 2007. So her track record as a peacemaker and critical peace researcher uh, has made her a sought out advisor so it's an honor for us to join us. It's going to be a really fun conversation uh, between her and Pastor Bob, the journeys that they've been on together and how they've met and just kind of some fun stories behind there as well. Thank you so much for joining us. And here we go, jumping right into the podcast episode. Here's Pastor Bob Roberts and Najiba Saeed. I am so excited today to have with me my friend, Najib Syed Miller. She's my friend. I've known her for 10 years. I love her dad. Tried to get her dad to come speak at my church. He couldn't. He said, oh, Bob, you have to have my daughter. And I said, no way. I want you. So he said, no, you have to have her. So she came. She is incredible. I have kept up with her for 10 years. I read her stuff. I learn from her. And I've explained to her, I have my crazy friends on this podcast. And so it's Najiba time. I don't want people to just know you as a scholar and as an activist. I want them to know you as a person uh, that, that I've come to know. And where were you raised? Where did this whole bridge building, peacemaking thing come from? How, how, did, how did you become Najiba? <laughs> well, that's, I should probably ask my parents that question. I don't know, <laughs> they, I don't know how they chose the name exactly, but uh, actually my grandfather chose my name, but I was born in Kashmir. But wait, wait, wait. Um, what does Najiba mean? It means, um, it's an Arabic name. It means uh, someone who is generous, uh, distinguished in some way, noble. And so my last name, Saeed, means happy. So, uh, you know, it's it's a great combination. <laughs> Hopefully awesome. living up to generous and happy. And if you know my dad, 
Dr. Said, he's always laughing. So, you know, that's in some ways the basis of much of my um, belief in my own tradition and reaching out to others is my father always and my mother always saw religious diversity as a strength. So they were very careful to give us uh, deep training, confidence, and uh, understanding of Islam. So I always grew up knowing my religious tradition. But in some ways, it's interesting because people ask me, you know, if I come into conversation with other religious traditions, will it challenge my own? And I say it's really about how you're coming into that conversation already formed in your tradition. So for my parents, they felt growing up, you know, they, they moved from Kashmir to the United States. And they felt that raising their children in the United States, it was important that we understand other religious traditions. So um, for them, it meant grounding us in our own religious tradition. My mother was always head of the, so Muslims, because we our, our holy day is Friday and we have to work, we go to Sunday school. So if you hear a Muslim person say, I, I, went to, I grew up going to Sunday school, it means we grew up going... My children are in the Muslim youth group and the, they grew up in the Muslim Sunday school, but it's not Christian Sunday school. No, no, no. Deep Muslim down, you school. want to be a Baptist. Just admit it. <laughs> yeah. Muslim <laughs> school on Sunday. So we grew up very grounded in our community. And at the very core of it um, was this idea that uh, our role on this earth, as the Quran tells us, is to uh, be rahmah, to be a source of compassion. That was the mission of Prophet Muhammad was to be a source of compassion to all people, to all to all beings. And so that was really the way I was raised. Both my mother and father said, you know, our goal on this uh, earth is to be a source of compassion and love. And you don't say that I only have compassion and love for fellow Muslims. The Quran doesn't say that that compassion is targeted only to people like you, your religious background, your ethnic background, your um history of of your own community or culture so i think uh that it's really been compassion driven so your mom and dad did an incredible job of that tell them about your other three brothers and sisters because there's three of us there's six of us so yeah there's six of us so my older sister um does a lot of work in um international um education and peace building and conflict resolution I have a younger brother that does a lot of faith-based work in Los Angeles, sorry, in uh, Washington, D.C. and interfaith work. Then um, I have another sister that does, you know, all of us are doing some work. And then the final two, as you may know, are named Isa and Musa, which is a story in itself. Isa means Jesus and Musa means Moses and they're identical twin boys. (laughs) So that was the genius of my father. (laughs) And this is, you know, back in the 1980s, we think of... um, interfaith or multi-faith or uh, however you talk about the work of understanding between different religious traditions, you know, he chose to name his identical twins Isa and Musa. And when they were born, the local paper said, Jesus and Moses born in the same family. <laughs> and that family is Muslim. It's Muslim, yeah. Right. And I think part of it was uh, part of his, and now you have a lot, I mean, historically, we've always had those names in our community. But for those that don't know, um, in the Muslim tradition, we honor um, Isa, salam, Jesus upon him be peace, as a very revered prophet, as well as Musa, Moses. And so it was a way to 
connect us by naming his children that it was a way to connect us to the other major religious traditions in the United States, the Christian and Jewish community. So they've never um, been afraid to do that. But I think what's really important and similar to the work that you do, uh, Bob, is that it's always grounded in being a Muslim. So for you, this work is grounded in you being a Christian. So I come to the table doing uh, dialogue, service projects, and other work with people of other religious traditions because I'm a Muslim, because I believe that that's what my, um, that's what my community uh, does because that's our religious obligation. And I think that's really important to come to the work, knowing why you're doing it and how it fits in your own um, authentic understanding of your scripture and your religious tradition and from teachers that you trust. When I work with pastors, that's one of the things I have to help them understand. You're not going to do this work uh, primarily because you're going to try to convert everybody. The reality, that's not going to happen. You're doing it because does a person have a value beyond merely being a part of your faith community? And if you can't see that value, then how do we live together? So I like that. Najiba, uh, Christians and Muslims living in the public square together, uh, just them living together can be challenging. How do we how do we live in the public square together and to build these civil uh, communities that flourish? How do how do we do that? How can we work together? I mean, I think it's in some ways um, one of the most important things about living together is that it's not just uh, it's not just something we talk about. You know, it shouldn't be something that's just mentioned. That's uh, sometimes I tell people that when we're together we are so nice to each other in the public square so that we out nice each other to say, no, no, your religious tradition, you're wonderful. No, you're wonderful. No, you're wonderful. And that's a great first stage of conversation and dialogue. Um, so there are a couple of reflections. One of them is what we say about each other when the other is not in the room is actually the most important thing. So what my children learn about Christians in their Muslim education is very important. What you what uh, you say from your pulpit about Muslims is really important. So I think I used to focus a lot on just when we're together, but I'm very interested because I one of my areas of research is religious education is what are we saying about the other when they're not in the room? And so that's mm -hmm. one thing is to to look through. Are we representing them accurately? You know, because I think it's. Um, it's, it's really easy. And unfortunately, a lot of online sources from every group are um, out to demean other religious traditions. So, you know, if someone comes to me, if, if a Muslim comes to me and says, well, I learned this about the Bible or I have this verse, I'll ask them, what was the source of it? You know, because I am uh, I'm now in my 11th year as the only Muslim professor at a Christian seminary. And I've had to learn a lot about, you know, um, about about uh, about biblical teachings and understanding. And so it's really it's really easy to pull something out of a scripture without any understanding, without uh, knowing what it means to that community itself. So um, just as I think about um, what I want Christians to learn about Muslims, I have to think about what are what are Muslims learning about Christians? So I think we have to be wary and cautious about what we teach about other religious traditions. Um, you know, so I encourage I encourage pastors not to buy books on Islam mm -hmm. from Christians. Uh, learn it from Muslims. The differences will become apparent. 
And, and it's not like you're trying to win an argument. Something else we do, we teach a concept we call one conversation. Learn to say the same thing in public that you do in private, the same thing in private that you do in public, because the truth of the matter is there is no privacy anymore, and it's going to come out. And Absolutely. it's better to learn to say, if you disagree, just say, I disagree, and here's why. But you don't have to vilify someone or trash mm-hmm. them. It's important. So I have a question. So once you get past the step of different religions actually um, agreeing to work together, how does that work? I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of hurdles and culture and understanding. So from this is for both of you, from, from both of your experiences, how do you fit that in and make that work, Najiba? So, you know, it's uh, one thing that I do in my interreligious dialogue and leadership courses. I ask students in that course, of different religious backgrounds. I ask them to do an exercise on their own where I say, what is the tradition that you fear the most? And then the next question I ask them is, where does that fear come from? And then the third question I ask them is, what resources do you have to address that fear in your own tradition? And um, I used to, uh, I used to think, I think in the beginning, I didn't make space for that conversation around fear because it was sort of like, well, if you're coming to the table, you should just want to be here for understanding. And I think what has helped in those kinds of self-reflective conversations around fear is to understand that sometimes our fear is not even based on religion. That if you were to look at Muslims and Islam judged basically only on media (laughs) exposure, movies, even forget just the media. If you just, you know, uh, talk to Muslim, if you just uh, base your opinion on Islam based on media um, and not engaging as, you know, uh, as, as Baba often does talk about the fact that we need to talk to each other, not about each other. By the way, I use that quote a lot and I've attributed it to you in my, yeah, in my research and writing. It's a good quote. Wait, but I think- I'm a scholar. the scholar Bob Roberts. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I, but my point here is that I think it's really important to talk about what are, to be honest with ourselves, because it's not, I think um, we jump into the notion that everyone, that these, this, that behavior comes just from hatred, but I think also there is fear and it's helped to understand. And I, I, so I say that for both communities, if we're talking about Muslim Christian relations, like there are some, uh, the, 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 ex- the the source of the fears may have some legitimacy. By that, I mean, there could be a fear that is based on misinformation. There could be a fear that's based on um, what's happening in the world politically and addressing that in addition to addressing the interreligious literacy, because it's not just about portraying Christianity or Islam in a, in a positive light. It's also thinking about, well, where are my fears coming from? And not creating a space in our dialogic experience to address that fear and to understand it. And what I found is when I have and do that kind of work, people have fears that are based, they're not always based on religion. They're based on some some people um, have, it comes even from history. It comes from, um, you know, uh, experiences uh, whether it's Christianity or Islam, they may come from another country where those relationships haven't been positive. So they carry that with them um, or their ancestors or someone in their family didn't have the best experience with the other religious traditions. So I just wanted to point out that I think that work around fear is very helpful 
Um, and that once you address it, you begin to understand it's not just about it's not just about having a good uh, impression of Muslims. It's also or or Christians or Jews or whatever the group may be. I've I've begun to spend more time on that because I think that that fear is harnessed by religious leaders across the world mm -hmm. to build up further divides, to build up and whatever that context may be. Since I do conflict resolution that fear, you can um, bolster it, you can build on it, you can build whole um, perspectives of other religious traditions to justify all kinds of violence. And so I, I just, it seeps into wherever and whomever we are. And I think we have to address those, um, those sources of fear and know that each of our religious traditions have resources within them to help us understand why it's important to get to know the other. So Bob, when you, when you bring in, that sounds similar to a lot of the stuff that you do too, Bob, right? But you, you bring in pastors and rabbis and, um, and Muslims to, together, and you're actually doing action. There's action to be taken. Tell us a little bit about that and any type of hurdles that you had yeah, to get I, over. I like what Najiba said, uh, because there, there's a statement I've written in, in a book I wrote, and it's the people I feared the most are the ones I've come to love the most. And I think a lot of the things, Najiba, listen, you know, I've heard for years from evangelical pastors, those Muslim imams in the Middle East, they say horrible things about Christians and, and so forth. And guess what? They're right. But let me tell you what I've discovered. Evangelical pastors right down the road from me, churches with thousands of people, do the exact same thing. When they vilify, when they say things that they really don't know, they just hear, there's no context that's given. So I, I think this is why clerics are critical, because I think they do drive it. And here's what I've discovered. They use the fear for whatever point they're trying to get across, whether it's to grow a big church and people are afraid. So I know to go to the church or to the mosque to find comfort. I think this is a big deal. So my primary response to that is to humanize. Here's what I've discovered. Here's what really moves people. It's, it's not, okay, now you're probably going to disagree with me here, Najiba, because you're a scholar. But I'm convinced it's not information. It's relationship. Absolutely, 100%. Because what I'll do, I'll get these pastors in the room. I have to beg and plead and tell them nobody's going to shoot them and have to do the same thing with the imams. No, we don't have any pastors that are members of the FBI. We'll get them in the room, and within three days, they change their mind with one another. Here's why. It's not some new verse the Muslims discovered in the Quran or the Christians discovered in the New Testament. It's all about relationships. And man, when they become friends, all of a sudden, it's funny. By the end of the week, they're saying, Bob, I'm going to tell you, I know what Muslims are like, but he's not like that. He's, he's a different Muslim. And I just don't argue with him. I want to say, no, no, no. He's a normal Muslim. But that's too much. I just want him at first to say, that's a Muslim, and they're a normal person, and maybe that's the only normal Muslim person in their mind in the world. But as they become friends, they go, wait a minute, I'm wrong about something, so, some of the things. Let me ask you this, Najiba. Uh, you know, I mean, you're an in incredible peacemaker, uh, conflict negotiator. You, I look at America right now, we're at a tense moment. It, it breaks my heart. I, I can never remember it being more tense in my life than it is right now. And I hate the cancel culture and the vilification. I don't know if this 
happens in Islam or not. But we have Christians that say to other Christians, you can't be a Christian and vote for Trump, or you can't be a Christian and vote for Biden. And it's like we put politics above our faith. And we're just destroying one another. And I, I can't stand it. I'm curious. The Muslims have that same challenge. And what would you say about reducing the tension? I mean, I think, you know, I think that religion has always had some role in the public square. Um, you know, the values that contributed to um the values that contributed to the type of dialogue that is possible are based on religious values. I think what we have to negotiate is how do we manifest religious pluralism in this country, in this moment? And um, because one of the things I tell people is that if you're religious and you're not standing up for um, religious pluralism, it's hard in this world and in this modern age to be religious of to be religious of any type of background, right? So if we're out there not supporting the participation and existence of people of different religious traditions, it's going to backfire against me in the end. You know, if um, if I allow for the demonization of whether it's Christians, Jews, or whomever. Or we've seen attacks on houses of worship, you know, violence against houses of worship that ultimately, um, and I think this is in some ways why the Quran tells us that it names monasteries, synagogues, mosques, uh, partly because there is, while we are very different, you know, I'm always clear about that, you know, I, I'm not of, I'm not looking for the one sort of this, this task of one theology that explains all religions. I think we have very separate teachings and beliefs. And at the same time, living in modern democracies, we have to be able to understand how do we engage in some capacity for uh, religious pluralism that allows everyone to flourish. Because things change over time. If one in one moment, one religious community is targeted to have power and another is experiencing hate, but those dynamics can change over time. And that's why I think it's really important to think about what does it? What does religious pluralism look like? How is it um, manifested by faith leaders? And how do we stand up and support one another? Um, so that means sometimes when there are Christians being targeted for violence around the world, that means me showing up and saying something as a faith leader. When uh, Muslims are being targeted, um, that means Christian leaders showing up. Because I think ultimately it's not just about my community or whether I have skin in the game, it's about religious people being able to uh, not be targeted for their beliefs. Um, because it can start with words. It can start with negative uh, emotions, but it can move, unfortunately, into, as we've seen, uh, sadly, in our own country, it can move into much more serious um, acts of hate crimes. Uh, I was thinking have about- Have you ever felt someone discriminate against you or- give you a hard time for being a Muslim? Specifically? Yeah. Def I mean, I also, what you know, about Christian? You, can you point to an experience? You don't have to give names or stuff, but an experience you have. This pastor I met, Bob Roberts, and he didn't have the right, <laughs> kind, of, have the right kind of ice cream at his annual. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, Bluebell. Yeah. That's right. You know, it's interesting because certainly I can point out uh, cases like that. I'm also visibly Muslim. You know, my name is uh, my, I can't really pass. 
for anything else. You know, some people can pass uh, based on they may have a name that blends in better. But when you cover your head and you're in a public public space in America, it's hard to pass for much. Except I tell people on Halloween's the only day that I, I nobody looks at me weird. <laughs> <laughs> it's coming up. And they're like people say, "What are you gonna What are you gonna dress for as Halloween?" I'm like, "That's the only day I'm normal." <laughs> so I'm just um, but to get, I think to get to your point, um, I think that it has been interesting for me because as I've taught in uh, Christian seminaries, I have a range of students from very religiously conservative to very religiously progressive, that it's sometimes the more religiously conservative students that are drawn to me as a professor and thankful that you know, I've had students say, thank you for being able to express your faith in the public square, because we feel like that's something that's difficult for us to do. And you do it kind of without apology, without, you know, um, just do it. When I started um, after 9-11, there were definitely targeted hate crimes against Muslims and particularly Muslim women. And I was told um, I had just graduated from law school in 2000. And, uh, you know, people were telling me, take off your hijab. You're not going to make it. Don't. uh, When I applied for academic positions. And what's been interesting to me is that I think actually the positions I've gotten have been because I bring my full self into the work. And that's what I would hope for religious people of different traditions is that part of religious pluralism is bringing ourselves into spaces, not just because it's our right, but because I think it makes the world a much better place. You know, yeah. This is really good, Najiba, uh, because I do the same thing. Uh, but I didn't, at first, I didn't do it because it was a strategy. I was outed, uh, so to speak. So I spoke at the World Islamic Forum and they introduced okay. me as an evangelical pastor from Texas. So, I mean, there's no getting around it. And uh, you could just feel getting around the Texan part or the evangelical part. (laughs) You just feel the air leave the room. So I got up and I said, it's true. I mean, I'm evangelical. I believe in the Bible. I believe Jesus is God. I didn't know you're not supposed to say these things. I believe Jesus is God's son. I believe that he died for the sins of the world. And I love you guys, too. And instead of them getting upset, they clapped. And they were actually. And here's why. They were going, okay, finally, a Christian who will be honest with us. And I didn't know you should be dishonest or you should be careful about telling your truth or hold back on it. I just think you have to be kind and respectful there. You are. You laugh. I laugh. I mean, I, I spoke at the World Economic Forum. I speak all over the place, places I should not be. And it's because he is a passionate. <laughs> they haven't, they haven't found out yet. <laughs> yeah, no, that's right. But they go, he's a passionate evangelical. He's just not mad at everybody. And he gives think, you your space. And there's, I think, a principle in the Quran and in our religious tradition that says, La there should be no compulsion in religion. So I think it's for, as a Muslim, it's a balance between me being um, open about what I believe, manifesting that belief, but not pressuring others or creating those conditions in which if you're with me or around me, that I'm not an agent of pressuring you into, um, into, uh, you know, that I need to respect your practice and respect the difference and not exert a kind of compulsion or pushing you um, in a way. And that's actually not the best way to, 
to engage with other religious traditions either. If you push or, you know, push people into push your religion down their throat in a way that isn't um, mutually respectful, it actually creates a negative impression, you know. Um, but that's what being a Baptist is all about, Najib. I mean, in Texas, we don't know to do it any other way. But I mean, compulsion is like trying to uh, do it in such a way that it um, I'm not listening to you, but even more deeply that I'm forcing you to use force. And by that, I mean, historically, physical force, other types of force. And I think that is part of religious pluralism to me is that I think it's important to bring who I am, respect who you are, but not to physically force you. And that's why when people ask me, well, I see Muslims, you know, if I see someone who's trying to enforce a religious belief on me, use it. So when I say force, I mean, I don't mean just, you know, having a, a persuasive argument. I meant using some type of uh, force. And that's where I think religions have to be careful is that um, once we begin to utilize methods of compulsion that are beyond conversation or dialogue, then we actually work against the interests of our own religious traditions. I'm just sharing that from experience and conflicts around the world. If you think you're going to achieve success by forcing people, and by that I mean using physical force, using violence or aggression, it actually pushes people away from listening. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, I so, think it's different than talking all the time about your religious tradition. No, no, no. I, was, I just want to be clear because I think it's a principle of nonviolence yeah. in how we talk to one another. And I think that that's been something I've really learned a lot about. So that's good. Let me ask you this. I love uh, what you guys, I may not understand properly, but at Claremont where you taught, you had actual uh, Christian seminary students and Muslim seminary students, is that correct? And they That's were right. all so each, Well, what, what we did is, I think, and this is now um, what I'm doing at Chicago is this, we have a Christian partner, and then we incubated a graduate Muslim seminary. So the seminaries, and then we had a relationship with a Jewish rabbinical school, and actually a Buddhist-based uh, college as well. So each of the institutions trained their students, you know, for ordination, depending on each religion, each Christian denomination or non, if it's non-denominational. Um, see, I've learned a lot. I didn't used to know the difference between a Baptist, a Methodist, and uh, and a Lutheran. Now I can, I can talk to you about some of the nuances of, of the doctrines between each. Um, but I think that's a very helpful model is to have these kind of uh, institutions of their on their own training their students in whatever they were already doing before or in their requirements, and then to have courses where they interact with one another. And um, for instance, I'm teaching a course right now on um, interreligious engagement and to see an imam, because it's mostly clergy, an imam uh, engage with a pastor in the classroom and say, oh, that's really interesting. It's been a very um, poignant kind of relationship building. You were talking about the relational component around kind of a friendship to watch it as scholars is really profound um you know to understand how mary and uh jesus are seen by muslims is something that i think christians actually um they're really they're really moved by that and then for my my muslim students to see yes christian clergy are as concerned about issues of um you know, dealing with issues of family or whatever they may be. I think it's really, it's really helpful. But I do think the best 
model is to have sort of these partnerships that are authentic in their own religious tradition so that when you come together, as we talked about earlier, the students are formed with confidence in their own religious tradition to be able to engage across religious tradition. It's been a positive thing for me. I was in Saudi Arabia a few years ago, and uh, the media was interviewing me after I'd been there for a week uh, with our friend, Prince Turkey, who also spoke at the event where you were, and he and I are still friends. But it was interesting. One of the journalists asked me, they said, uh, so seeing Muslims and being here at the heart of Islam, what has it done to you? And I said, I'll tell you what it's done to me. It's made me a better Christian. And the reporter said, what do you mean? I said, it for it has forced me to think, to question, to go deeper in my own faith. I think it would almost be essential to be able to go to seminary where, you know, what if you took a class? I mean, I would love to take a class on the Bible and the Quran. Absolutely. Here, yeah. here an Islamic scholar like Hamza Yusuf or, or Majid or, or, you know, hear them talk about here's how we got the Quran, its inspiration and our view. And for me to be able to ask questions and then turn it around. Here's how we got the Bible. Here's what it means. Here's how we view scriptural authority. Because what happened is I didn't get deep into theology until I began to relate to people of other religions because they would ask nuanced questions that I had never thought about. And I just, I I think we're missing something. Uh, That's true. I think, you know, if you, let's say if you are mono, you grew up in a mono religious community where everyone agrees with you and it's reinforced, that's beautiful. But then that's not the world anyone lives in anymore. That could have been the world a thousand, even a thousand years ago, you know, if you look at some of the early interactions Prophet Muhammad had with the Christian community, the Christians of Najran, he had to do dialogue with them. And they didn't always end up agreeing, but they were able, and if there are different instances in his life where Christians played very vital roles of relationship with him. And it's important for Christians to know that story. And it's important for Muslims to know that story because it's, for Muslims, the most religiously authoritative figure in our tradition is Prophet Muhammad, upon him be peace and his example. So we have to look at, and as we know, um, one of my mentors, he's passed away, uh, Glenn Stassen. He um, was at Fuller Theological Seminary, and he mm-hmm. wrote about religion and peacemaking. And he would always say, tell his Christian students, you know, thicken Jesus, thicken the example of Jesus in your writing around peace building. And it was actually his influence that um, he would tell me that. And when he would say thicken Jesus, I thought about thicken the example of Prophet Muhammad. So instead of being talking about religion as a source of violence, thinking about it as a source of peace, so that when I look at the practices of Prophet Muhammad, the Panambi peace, I'm looking at how he engaged with other religious traditions. And I think that there's so it's it's part of it is a scholarly knowledge of our own religious traditions, you know, because even how we learn our own religious traditions doesn't always include the vast amount of resources that already existed yeah. around religious pluralism. So I think I had to go back and learn uh, more deeply about Prophet Muhammad and learn about the times that he did engage with Christians so that my relationship with Christians, you know, as we know, the first place that gave refuge to Muslims, asylum, was um, the Ethiopian African Christian Negus or um, king 
of Abyssinia, Muslims in the very early time of the mission of Prophet Muhammad fled violence in Arabia and went to Ethiopia. So those are important stories because it shows us that, and I call this re-mythologizing in my work, where we look at this mythology that somehow Christians and Muslims never got along. Or I do this with also with Jews and Muslims or Jews and, you know, that our communities always you know, I never accept the inevitability that we'll always be fighting because there have been times that we haven't. And as um, for those of you that are interested in history, unfortunately, we only learn about wars. You know, I can tell you all the wars of a particular religious tradition, but there were times that we have lived in peace and we have lived with each other. And that's not so this is not a new endeavor. The work that you're doing has a history to it. And, and I would I would just also add this that. As an evangelical, I am evangelistic. That means I talk to people about Jesus. Uh, we have something called the Great Commission. I've learned Muslims have something similar called the Dawah. And those of us that want to talk about our faith, I think it's critical. You said it. We've got to listen. But we need to understand their faith from their perspective. I found it fascinating. You teach conflict resolution skills from the Prophet Muhammad. So one of them that's really important is not interrupting, that if you look at when people would come to him with problems, he listened until they shared their whole problem, because part of those of us that do pastoral care, we know listening is so important. Another one is that in interpersonal relationships with other people, he never raised his hand. He never struck anyone. Another is that he would keep his voice very low and modulated. So I often talk about his skills as de-escalating conflict. So the Quran tells us that the worst sound is the braying of a donkey, which means that screaming and yelling. So when I was little, I used to laugh at that, but it's true. If Think about if you start screaming, um, nobody's paying attention to what you're saying. So he had, he kept his voice in a very uh, modular sort of low, uh, low conflict kind of a way of expressing himself. He was also known if you called his name that he would turn his whole body to face you, not just his head. And he would do that for anyone in the community. And I think that's a very key skill is that he treated everyone, whether they were the most wealthy or the most poor, whether they had the most influence or the least influence, he gave them his full undivided attention. And that is something that I think we can all learn these days um, one of my, one that I love is also the women came to him and said, you know, you, we have a hard time getting to talk to you. So he said, well, I'm going to reserve one day on a regular basis just for you. So <laughs> I like that story too, because it shows that, you know, they had a complaint and they were critical and he didn't just shut them up or throw them out. But he said, you're right. Let me, let me be accessible to you. How many leaders these days of whatever religious background have that humility when, or as a pastor or an imam, or for me as a professor, if someone comes and says, you're not listening to me, you know, my reaction would be to shut them out even more. But this was just a really beautiful example. And there are many examples like that, that really, I think we as religious leaders, I think we have focused so much in this culture right now around winning and dominating our perspective. And that makes me really worry. Deborah Tannen calls us an argument culture. I would love to see us move to a place where we're listening. And that's where religion can bring humility into this conversation. But he also entertained, for instance, 
complaints by non-Christians, uh, non-Muslims against Muslims. We have stories of, he listened to a complaint uh, that a Jewish person had against a Muslim and he ruled actually in favor of the Jewish person. So this idea that fairness should not be based on favoring our own, but fairness is based on that principle of divine justice, that when something wrong has happened, we stand for justice. And so, um, so those are just some of the examples. I often just think of him as an embodiment of fairness, an embodiment of recognizing human dignity, and also uh, ultimately being someone who is a peace producer. So he didn't just make peace, he didn't just solve problems, he actually helped us, he multiplied the impact of peacemaking so that it became a part of the culture, hopefully. Najiba, this has been incredible. I'm Thank very you. grateful. Wow, we are so thrilled to have Najiba on and her um, uh, great insight uh, on peacemaking and just impressive resume of, of really uh, taking action uh, not only to the public square, but really to um, the young generation as well. So we thank you so much to Najiba for joining us. And thank you for joining us on this storytelling journey with Pastor Bob. And if you were impacted by this conversation, we would love for you to download and subscribe to the podcast and share it with others on social media. Um, we want to spread the word on getting out the message of love. So for more information on the podcast, show notes, or any references, you can go to bobrobertsjr.com. That's bobrobertsjr.com. Click on podcast and you get all the information there. So much love to everybody listening. We appreciate you joining us. And remember at the Bold Love Podcast, we want to encourage you, the listener, to live out your faith boldly, how to better love your neighbor, and learn how to relate to others despite your differences without compromising your faith.